Hurricane Michael slams into Florida and Georgia. ATA's Bob Costello says trucking rates are plateauing, but the market remains strong. The Dow Industrial Average drops 800 points in a day. But despite the transport sell-off, Stiefel reiterates its buy rating on C.H. Robinson. I'm JP. And I'm Zach, filling in for Chad. And we cover all these issues and more on this week's episode of What the Truck. And we're also joined uh, this week by FreightWave's senior meteorologist, Nick Austin. Welcome back. Thank you. Good afternoon. Uh, and Zachary Strickland. <laughs> yeah. It's been a long time since we've had you in the booth. Uh, welcome back, dude. All right. Yeah. Happy to be here. Chad is uh, you know, probably happy to be where he is, too, uh, in the Bahamas. So, um, Out of the way of any tropical activity. <laughs> I don't have a whole lot to say about that. I hope you're having fun, Chad. All right, well, let's get into it. We published a lot of stuff about Hurricane Michael, uh, the very intense storm that started off the Yucatan Peninsula, um, you know, as as a normal tropical storm. Uh, it was projected to, you know, kind of hit, um, you know, the U.S. as a tropical storm, but it didn't really play out like that. Can you tell us sort of what happened, how this storm got so powerful so quickly it 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 started like uh, most hurricanes normally start it just started as uh, a tropical wave just kind of a cluster of thunderstorms uh, like you said down right near western Cuba and one thing that hurricanes really like as far as development is heat and this storm got strong really quickly because um, it was moving right into the Gulf of Mexico and the surface temperatures and the Gulf, the water temperatures, even for this time of the year, are warmer than normal, particularly right along the coast of the Florida Panhandle. So that's one thing that kind of helped fuel this storm a lot. And, you know, it didn't have a long, long way to go compared to, say, Florence. So the weather, you know, the Hurricane Center was able to keep its eye on it um, and really track it pretty easily and they got the track almost dead on spot like, on as far as right where it made landfall too right um you know florence was a little trickier because it started way way out in the atlantic over by africa you know and right. they had a lot of time to watch it but um but there's so there's so much shear and things in the way right like different at systems. different spots over right. you know, yeah, the, no, it, the, it, the vastness of of that space so over the ocean what, what yeah. i don't get is like you know, as soon as um, Michael developed into a tropical storm, we, I mean, you know, even someone like me can log on and look at the sea surface temps. I mean, we right. knew that it was hot. We knew that it was, you know, 84, 85 degrees. Um, wh- so why didn't, why were the early forecasts so optimistic about uh, Michael not gaining that much strength? Well, I don't think they, they certainly didn't think it would get to category four strength and or maybe even three. Um, they they were projecting hurricane, right? Maybe category two. But yeah. then, because the waters were so warm, and you mentioned shear, that's another thing. Is when it first developed, it was in an area where there was some shear. That's that means in the upper levels of the storm, the uh, winds were fairly weak. They weren't changing directions. They were like knocking the tops off they were, the storm. They were changing, they? right? Yeah. So it's kind of so it's kind of sucking kind energy of, out of the yeah. system, right, and tearing it apart, kind of, right. Um, but as it moved further into the Gulf, there was a lot less shear, so there's less of that happening. The mm-hmm. storm was able to uh, organize a lot better. Um, 
it was moving over the warmer waters, the pressure was getting lower, and so then it starts, the spin just gets tighter around the eye when that happens, kind of, you know, right. imagine, imagine like a like figure skater out on the ice, and when the figure skater brings his or her arms closer in right. to the center to, of, you know, of the body, right. sure. it spins faster, and that's what's happening with this. So warm waters, less, a lot less shear over the golf as well. And the other thing, too, uh, they noticed uh, that right around the eyewall, there were some uh, thunderstorms developing. They're called hot towers. They're very, 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 very tall thunderstorms that release a lot of heat back into the whole system. And so uh, that wow. really energized the storm. So is that just, would that be why it kind of accelerated growth so fast right, there at the end? Exactly. Like exactly. normally, I know I know I heard with Florence that as soon as it kind of got to the coastline, things started, started, there was a lot of friction with the ground or something like that, and then it just kind of tore the storm apart. But this one, did, that didn't happen with this one. Like right, it, and there might have been some shear too with, uh, with okay. Florence as well that, that, uh, that helped weaken that storm, which was good because I, if I remember correctly, it was up to Cat 4 at one point when it was out right. on, over the ocean. Yeah, right. Um, so, and the other difference between the the damage that Florence caused compared to Michael Florence once it made landfall was cut off from the jet stream it was cut off from the winds that steer weather systems across the country right so it was just stuck there for 4 days with non-stop rain a lot of heavy rain as well so that's why they had all the flooding the wind damage wasn't as, wasn't really that bad mm-hmm. Michael was the opposite Right. Michael's winds. I mean, you're talking about 155 mile an hour winds. Yeah, that was where that yeah. damages the infrastructure. That's what that's what really did. There was flooding and storm surge, but because Michael got picked up in the steering winds ahead of a cold front that's moving through the eastern part of the country now, that's why it it moved faster. Right. Okay. That's okay. why it moved faster, and so that was good from a flooding perspective. Well, even from the winds perspective, because you don't want it to sit on top of you. You don't want it to sit right on top of you. But that's the reason why their flooding problem is sure. is a lot uh, more temporary. Right. Basically, right. that was yesterday. Is the storm surge and then it receded. Yeah. And it's not, the flooding <clears throat> isn't really lingering, but the wind damage is going to take a long time to um, fix. So, so yeah, init- you know, let's talk a little bit about the disruptions and the damage that mm-hmm. the storm caused um, and, you know, it's sort of what the aftermath is looking looking like. Um, whether, uh, you know, relief efforts are, um, you know, being able to sort of get into into the affected area and do things. Right. From from what I've seen so far, there haven't been major problems with that, um, especially in the areas affected the most, which is Panama City, uh, Apalachicola, Mexico Beach, where it made landfall. Right. And like from Apalachicola up to Panama City Beach, I think that's about a 50-mile stretch or so, give or take. So that's yeah. that's where most of the damage was concentrated, the heaviest damage. And I haven't heard of any problems of crews getting in there. A lot of them, whether it was military, whether it was FEMA, uh, state emergency, other relief groups, Red Cross and stuff, they were already pre-positioned. Right. So, uh, so they were already there. Now, there might be other crews... Smaller crews, say utility crews, uh, that weren't pre-positioned yet trying to maybe come in from other states or other parts of Florida. I haven't heard of anybody having any major problems getting into those areas. They're having to clear debris. Um, 
and obviously start, try and restore electricity from from a little bit from near Pensacola uh, all the way over to Alpachicola near Tyndall Air Force Base in those areas, right. um, and over to Tallahassee even. I mean, from from Panama City or from Pensacola to Tallahassee, I mean, that's a big stretch. Talk right. about almost 200 miles. Takes and, a long time to drive that. <laughs> and there are about four to 500,000 people, you know, power. reported power outages just along that stretch. Uh, South Georgia and Southeast Alabama have a lot of power outages. I think, I think among all three states and even in North Carolina, there's about eight or 900,000 power outages. Wow. Reports. Have we heard have we heard any initial like damage cost estimates? I think Florence was about 20 billion. I haven't I haven't yet. Okay. Um but I know, I know it's, it's, it's a little early for that. But. Right, and it, it probably is, yeah. but it's it's going to be bad. It's going to it's going to take a long a long time, you know, probably weeks to get just to get the power back up. They've right. got to get all the debris and you know, there's a lot of damage to uh homes and the businesses right sure. along the, I mean there are locals that live in these areas but it's it, it is mostly tourism right uh, and things like that so there are <coughs> service hotels industry. service industry um, the you know, one I was, I was, was reading something by our chief economist one time and he, he basically was able to net the impact to GDP and I think mm-hmm. he said something about Florence actually had about a 0.1% impact to GDP and it's a short term loss right. but it ends up being caught up and then you you gain that back in the months to come. Some of the sectors do, some don't. <clears throat> so, like, you know, if, you know, your local Home Depot, uh, you know, loses power for a week, mm-hmm. um, you're, you're going to still replace your refrigerator. You right. just might do it a month later. Right. right. But um, industries like uh, restaurants don't actually recoup their losses because what happens is, you know, if they close down for a month, you don't then go out to eat twice as much the right. following month to Correct. make up for it. So there are some kind of services that never, That's true. you know, that, that get hit and, and don't don't make it back. And so, so those are, you know, kind of touristy. A lot of visitors mm-hmm. go to these areas. So there are and it was fall break restaurants up here. Yeah. and other things like that. And, um, and we were talking about this earlier, JP, that the... Uh, Luckily, there's there's not a large shortage of fuel in the area because right, yeah. that's necessary for successful relief operations. Yeah. And so we talked to um, Ned Bowman, the executive director of the Florida Petroleum Marketers Association. He said that um, while there was kind of a run on fuel before the storm hit, uh, you know, as expected, uh, people sort of raid uh, gas stations and grocery stores to stock up before disaster. He said that um, the fuel supplies in the Panhandle are adequate. He said that about 70% of the gas stations were operating fine. 30% were still offline, uh, but the state is, uh, you know, working to bring them back online as quickly as possible. There. And I also want to mention, too, that the probably about 80 miles or so of Interstate 10 are just closed. Oh, wow. Um, from, uh, this is from US 331 over which to is, the Apalachicola River. Right, which is about, like, it's directly north of Panama City? I think so. Yeah, I think that runs into Panama yeah, City. So that's, <laughs> so that's a large chunk of I-10 that is that just you can't drive. I believe in both directions. It's all blocked off. Yeah, there's not um, a good way around that either. <laughs> uh, so... Yeah, there really isn't. In parts, there are sections of the Florida Highway Patrol reporting sections of US 98, too, along the coast. Mm. Another 
popular route, right? Um, or either blocked or closed just because mm-hmm. of debris. Um, uh, maybe still a couple spots of flooding out areas that are flooded. A couple other uh, commodity disruptions that we're keeping an eye on. Um, a few um, oil platforms were evacuated and moved out of the storm's path, uh, shutting in about 40% of the Gulf of Mexico's oil production. Um, And it looked like, you know, Michael really did follow the track of a really heavily cotton-producing region in um, southeast Georgia. Um, we 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 don't have numbers on the actual damage to that crop. We know that it was in the, in the early stages of harvest when, um, you know, Michael was making its final approach. And we also know that Michael maintained, you know, it was so quickly moving, so it went across Georgia as a hurricane. Um, right. I mean, this storm is so quickly moving that today, this afternoon, Thursday afternoon, when we're recording this podcast, Wilmington is faced with the prospect of getting a tropical storm from the west. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is. I mean, there, it's it's moving. To the storm itself is near Charlotte right now, yeah. and heading up into Virginia, the Mid Atlantic states um, tonight and then early tomorrow, and then it'll just scoot right out into the Atlantic Ocean. But uh, but until that happens, um, you know, parts of North Carolina mm-hmm. up into Virginia could see some wind damage. Yeah, not we're, we're, not like what they saw at the coast, right? But no, but it's fifty mile an hour winds will break trees. That and, will definitely yeah. snap some trees, and it'll probably knock down some power lines. They could get some areas of flash flooding. Um, so this thing so is not, not over good. Yet. It's it's not over yet. It it won't be offshore in the Atlantic until probably about early tomorrow morning. Early early Friday morning off the Mid Atlantic coast, right? Friday yeah. morning. Um, and also, I talked. I, I don't know overall how. Trucking companies are doing. I, I talked to talked to one. Am I allowed to mention it? By yeah, of course, yeah. Sure. Old Dominion. Yeah, yeah. I talked to someone at Old Dominion, and they uh, they have five operating sites um, in Georgia. Four of them are not operating right now. Right, um, and they were like directly in the path of the storm. Directly in the path as it moved in the South Georgia. So like Macon down um, Fidelia, a couple other spots. Also Dothan, Alabama, their operating site. Uh, their one in Pensacola was spared for the most part um but it's only operating at 70 percent charleston's at 70 percent so it is affecting um at least uh, so we know, are seeing like major supply chain disruptions are, in, in the yeah. southeast yeah and the, the ltl networks a lot of them have those like kind of satellite terminals so dothan for instance is probably not a huge operating facility in the i don't know if they mentioned like anything about their hub for that region being disrupted. Uh, normally the what they'll do is they'll have these hub and spoke networks mm-hmm. as they kind of distribute out from it. And Dothan, I'm sure, is not one of those hubs. <laughs> 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 um, you know, it, so it would probably be concerning to me if it were like, because the way that they route their freighter through these hubs, mm-hmm. and then if you're out on the, one of the spokes, you're really not disrupting as much of the freight. Um, I would assume Macon might be a candidate, although Atlanta obviously is. Yeah. <laughs> and another thing Old Dominion uh, told me was that they typically, ahead of these kinds of uh, storms, they will move as much of the freight as possible to higher ground. Right. Interesting. Yeah. That's cool. So, Interesting. Um, so that's at least the perspective from... And Old Dominion you know, is, is... From one company. Widely thought of as one of the best LTL companies yeah. in the country. So yeah. they're, they're kind of the gold standard. So yeah. they know what they're doing. Exactly. 
Um, awesome. Well, uh, thanks a lot, Nick, um, for filling us in on, on Hurricane Michael and, and all the aftermath. Um, Zach, why don't we start talking about uh, some of this economic data that uh, the ATA's chief economist, Bob Costello, was um, talking about. Actually, you know what, first, we forgot to do this, and you know, <laughs> I, I didn't want to interrupt the very sort of grave, uh, serious hurricane coverage, but um, obviously, I'm drinking a Bell's Too Hearted. What, what do you got, Zach? Uh, so I, w- I was told that this has actually shown up on the podcast before, but I have a tectonic session IPA from Hutton and Smith, uh, brewed especially here in Chattanooga for one of our favorite uh, pubs, the uh, Tremont Tavern, which has one of the best burgers in, in the in the area. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. How, how is it? It's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Okay. So uh, Costello says trucking rates are plateauing, but the market remains strong. You know, we'll see about that. Uh, you know, we've looked at... Um, We've looked at declining volumes in October. Uh, I don't know, you, you read this article. Tell us a little bit about what the ATA's position is and kind of, the, you know, the issues that it has. Yeah, so, I mean, what they're doing is they're basically saying that rates, uh, these, these trucking co- the carriers are going to have the opportunity to get their 8 to 12% rate increases. Uh, and they think that they're actually going to have strong... He's talking about for the upcoming RFP for the, season. Yeah, for, we're, we're in the very beginning of procurement for, uh, you know, how that kind of starts. We used to call it, back in the day, it's bid season. Yeah. Uh, the shippers would send this out in, you know, October, November for contract implementation in the late to mid-spring. And uh, this is, you know, it's a pretty standard cycle because it's... It's the time of year where everybody goes through this process of evaluating the prior year and budgeting for the next year. Um, and not all of them operate on this standard October, November. We would get bids from like, you know, the, you know your big uh, players like Walmart and, and Home Depots and stuff. They would come out like when they when it best suited their cycle. And a lot of the time, the majority of them ended up in this October, November cycle. So what? What he's basically saying here, and, and I believe there was another uh, guy that, that's quoted in here, is saying that they're going to have pricing power all the way into 2020. Uh, I find that to be a... Carriers. Yeah, carriers to have pricing power. So that, that would be kind of unprecedented in trucking for carriers to have a three-year uh, pricing power cycle, like where you know the shippers don't have the leverage uh, in, in the process. And that's, that's a big statement. Um. Yeah, is he basing that just on um, data internal to transport the transportation economy, or is he talking about like macroeconomics? He's he's combining the two, and you know some of the numbers he's citing are GDP, and and everybody kind of knows that that's you know that's going well. Uh, most of the economy is is still showing signs of, of strength, but I think the kind of the thing he's inferring in here that isn't kind of overtly stated is the fact that there's this market sentiment out there. Like we've now gone through this, uh, you know, year and a half year cycle of everybody's kind of got it embedded in their head that there's no trucking capacity, right? right you know, right, and right, the right, ELDs right. came in and like, r- you know, half the driving force left the, uh, <laughs> left the market and, right, right, right. and all this stuff happened. In the meantime, you know, they're buying trucks and class eight orders are still on backlog and all this kind of stuff. And it's, you know, having having seen, you know, I haven't seen anything like this before where it lasted as long as it has so far. But 
to me, uh, it's always been kind of a knee-jerk reaction, one direction or the other. Exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't. I it's, don't. It's a stampede. Yeah. In, in either direction. Yeah. I mean, you have all this flood of investment going on right now, so that to me, that because there's so little visibility into the industry itself, uh, there's no like holy grail uh, that's going to pierce through this scene and let everybody know automatically what the capacity number is and and whatnot. So, right. I think that's also why rates. It, it's not a terrible statement to say that rates are probably looking good into next year, but to go out and say that's going to be good for the next year and a half is a pretty big, pretty big move. Yeah, I mean, I th- it's one thing to say that, like, okay, w- you know, I think it's indisputable that we're we've made a step up in rates, mm-hmm. that we're in an inflationary period. The simple fact that wages are up on average, driver wages are up on average twelve percent year over year, that alone. Yeah. bump the cost of trucking up permanently. For sure. Um, so, yeah, that's one thing. But, I mean, the demand side of the equation is the most volatile side, and that's the hardest to predict. Yeah. And, and no one, I mean, you know, a, a, a driver shortage one year looks like loose capacity the next year if the economy hangs. Yeah, and in 2006 or something, before the, uh, you know, the recession, uh, capacity was an issue then. And then in 2009, it wasn't. capacity was an issue. <laughs> like uh, it just wasn't. It just wasn't like everybody didn't bully. They didn't really act on it. Yeah. They just said, "Well, we have trouble getting drivers," and that's true in the large carrier sector. That's always been the case. Right. Um, right. I think the ATA has said that there's been a driver shortage like 77 percent of yeah. the quarters since like early 1992. Right. So you know. It just depends on how bad it is and what demand is doing. Right. And we've, I mean, the volumes, as, as we see, carriers, seeing as the industry, uh, again, I hate to be so cliche here, but the industry is so fragmented uh, out that nobody really knows what the other person's doing. So once the carrier starts having low utilization rates, he's going to go to the, you know, he's going to lower his rates like right away. Like right, they right, get, right. they get scared real fast. Um, and it takes a while for that to kind of gain momentum, I right. think. Right, but then it's like a snowball rolling down the hill. Right. Do you think, um, not to be, like, super cynical, but, I mean, okay, the ATA is trying to convince the world that trucking carriers will have pricing power for the next two years. I mean, is there a a bit of a conflict of interest here? I I mean, it's kind of implied. I mean, it's almost, like, obvious, I guess, to me (laughs) that that's kind of what their job is, is to kind of be the advocate for the big carriers, which is exactly who this is, uh, you know, impacting. I mean, they're they're a political organization. Right. Um, So, I mean, that's their main job and main focus, just to kind of gain awareness and, and, you know, to promote their cause. Uh, So, yeah, I I think that's exactly one of the things they're, keeping in play is kind of for the big carriers it's like you're gonna get your eight to twelve percent yeah for two years <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah so i think i think we kind of know where that's coming from yeah um okay let's go to our next headline um just what what the hell happened to the stock market yesterday it seemed like equity, equities were kind of going sideways for a while not a ton of you know volatility uh but then what happened yesterday Oh, a huge drop. Biggest drop since May? I think April. Or is it April? Oh, it went all the way back to April. Okay, I didn't, I didn't realize yeah, it was Yeah, it ended April. up dropping... Uh, 800 points. Yeah. That was, uh, I mean, that that to me is a pretty tremendous uh, sign. I mean, I, it used to be that you looked at the stock market as a leading indicator in the economy. 
Um, I don't know if that's so as, as true today as it was, you know, 10, 15 years ago due to the algorithmic trading. You know, everybody right. kind of programs their stop orders and, you know, you have these guys that have write, write code every day to catch momentum uh, in the market. So, I don't know. It's still big news. It's a big day. It's, a, you know, like 3% or over 3% loss. Yeah, um, a lot of people's 401ks uh, got hit yesterday. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. A lot of funds. <laughs> um it's interesting. I mean, they're different. You know, obviously, if you're watching like CNBC or, or Bloomberg TV or something like that, there are people talking about this all day long, speculating about the causes. Um, we, you know, I think um, Mariah Baker yesterday for us read an article kind of saying that, you know, according to like traditional Dow theory, you know, um, transports are a leading indicator of industrials, i.e., uh, you know, railroads, trucks, air cargo move the things that industrial companies uh, make and, and also their supplies that they use to make things with. And so if those transportation companies aren't getting good business, eventually it's going to show up on um, the earnings sheets of the industrials. As far as I know, though, like earnings have been kind of strong. They've like, been very strong. Like a lot of this, a lot of this sell-off feels really kind of like like people are spooked and people are anticipating like people are like like even though there have been a there was like a long like two three month long sell-off in transportation equities that started with um the Werner Enterprises uh Q2 results and I think you you we've actually talked about this on the podcast last time you were on Mm -hmm. um it wasn't because of the. It was like because people were afraid that they had already reached the peak. Right, and this this is kind of this common theme. Like we all we're all trained to think that, you know, everything has a cycle. Every up has a down. Uh, you actually gave me a really solid quote uh, not that long ago about how the the bull market has no expiration date. Yeah, they don't. <laughs> yeah, bull markets don't die of old age. Yeah, or something like that. Now, I love that quote, but it's true. I mean, we all kind of just. You know, at some point it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, the sky is falling. You know what? Eventually it will, you know, right, like right, right. once you say it enough. And, uh, you know, the more you expect it, the more things start to move that way. And, you know, there I, I don't know what started yesterday. I'm not that deep into the uh, stock market. Apparently the, the tech stocks were uh, sort of leading the, the fall. Uh, people were ditching tech stocks. Um, one thing that people are saying is that, with um, U.S. government bond yields so high now, um, you know, there's like a, basically a flight from risk. So like people, like why, if you're, if we know your equity, if we know like, equ- you know, the S&P 500 is trading at P.E. ratios that are well above like it's 30 you know, year average. Why not sell equities now and buy bonds when they have when they have no, high that, yields? That makes total sense, but you know I, the stock market's funny to me because it's like the herd mentality, yeah. uh, and for the stock market nowadays, like I said before, that it's a lot of this algorithmic trading. So once once they hit these stop limits, uh, everybody's you know orders start clicking in, and then you have people just kind of jumping in on the on the pace of the day. So I. I don't think we lost that much value overnight. <laughs> I mean, that, right, right, that, that's right, a lot right. of emotion and a lot of... Uh, it wasn't based on fundamentals. Right. No no fundamentals in, in any kind it's of... It's based movement. on just where people want to put their money. Every, you know, there's a lot of money out there looking for a home and yeah. people are shuffling it around. Exactly. And I think I think there's a lot of smart people, too, that, that you know, people are watching 
And once they start making a move, then it's like, oh, wait, well, so-and-so is doing this. So, you know, Warren Buffett's doing this, so I got to follow suit. Like, he right. knows what he's doing. Right. Um, so, in- interestingly, uh, despite yesterday, uh, I guess Wednesday's um, transport and industrials sell-off, uh, um, early Thursday morning, Stiefel reiterated their buy on um, C.H. Robinson, you know, the North America's largest 3PO and, and freight brokerage. Um, the, yeah. uh, the target price is $106. Um, yesterday, during the sell-off, uh, C.H. Robinson dropped 3.8% to 92.55. So pretty aggressive uh, 12-month discount. price target. Basically, they're saying, go get it now at a discount. Right, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's pretty interesting. I mean, they... You know, Stiefel, uh, they had just um, hosted C.H. Robinson Management for um, a series of investor visits and kind of had heard the executives uh, there making their case about, um, you know, the, sort of their growth proposition. And um, Bruce Chan wrote the, wrote the report um, Thursday morning for Stiefel. And, you know, the way I read it, it, it came down to, you know, kind of three basic things. One of the interesting things, though, um, that – goes back to what uh, Costello was saying and what we're talking about with, um, you know, the way that volumes are softening a little bit and uh, spot rates are definitely softening. Um, I think, I think you, you, you wrote earlier this week that uh, national um, outbound tenor rejection index, uh, you know, turndowns are the lowest they've been all year. Yeah. We're, we're, we're starting to see some definite sticky signs of, uh, definite loosening of the market. Um, spot rates have come down significantly since their peak in June uh, quite a bit. I think we were, we're probably about 15 to 20% off of, of peak value right now. And that'll, uh, you know, it's, it hasn't been super like down uh, since about the beginning of August. And so once we turn the calendar in October, uh, the bottom just dropped out again. Like yeah. the volumes went yeah. down. And the, the, it looked like carrier's sentiment, so the tender rejections went down, which, of course, is kind of a indication that capacity is loosening a lot. And um, Bruce Chan pointed out that this actually helps C.H. Robinson because C.H. Robinson, um, their mix of uh, their sort of book of business is heavily weighted toward contract freight. So what that means is they're selling trucking capacity to shippers based on high contract rates. And then they're turning around and buying trucks for softening spot prices. So as as the spot market deteriorates, their their margins actually widen. So Stiefel was saying that not only, you know, if you look at like the back half of 2018, is C.H. Robinson in a good spot, you know, sort of in the cycle or whatever. Structurally, they also have a big advantage. Uh, they're the, currently, you know, like, like I said, they're the largest um, 3PL in North America by a factor of three. Uh, they 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 broke. Um, they have about 20 percent market share of all of the brokered freight. I think it's I think it's fascinating, actually, because C.H. Robinson is, is definitely the oldest one out there in that model. But their model is not like all the other 3PLs. Uh, and, you know, in the 3PL sector is is generally this this group, uh, these people that basically profit off of just volatility. Right. And C.H. Robinson is the exact opposite. 
<laughs> they almost they almost thrive on a more stable uh, environment. Well, yeah, and and they and they're one of the the you know one of the few three uh, PLs that's large enough where they can really actually profit in a bear market because they have they they'll still have enough loads where trucks come to them mm-hmm. to define freight. Right, because they have such an expansive network right. and so many connections. And so. Um, What's interesting about sort of the, the brokerage uh, marketplace is that so C.H. Robinson has about 20% market share, three times bigger than anyone else. But about 60% of the brokerage market is made up of tiny little companies with less than 1% market share. All of those people can be, you know, essentially eaten up by, uh, you know, either C.H. or Echo or sure. somebody else. There's a lot of consolidation. At the same time... The percentage of all of total loads tendered that are being brokered is going up. So, bro- so brokerage itself is it's growing. Is growing the size of the pie. Sure. So, um, you know, um, Stiefel really says that you know scale is sort of an exponential advantage um, in brokerage because of the network effect. So, essentially, the more you know, shippers you have, the more carriers you have, the easier it is for you to cover a load. But that advantage is exponential, not linear. Um, and they look to be able to, you know, they're in a good position to grow even even, even bigger. Yeah, that's fascinating to me. The uh, the fact that, you know, the more, it, it makes too much sense when you kind of think about it in, in hindsight, because I guess you're just, I don't know, I've become so accustomed to this model of a smaller scale of brokerage and like he said, like, you know, less than 1% market share. Yeah, right. Uh, and then you have this behemoth. And there's tons of them. Yeah. And what, that's, that's, we, I've covered a bunch of them. I've, I've almost been, like, on, like, a 3PL, like, beat <laughs> lately. But it's crazy, especially in the past, you know, five, six years, how many small to midsize, very successful brokerages have sprung up everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of it has to do with, uh, you know, capacity constraints but i mean we're talking even before you know 2017 sure um they were growing fast in you know 2012 2013 2014 yeah it's, it seems to be relatively you know i don't want to make light of it but it seems to be relatively easy to kind of start up a brokerage and not from a work standpoint but from a kind of getting investment standpoint they kind of seem to be able to really get the initial capital uh to get going pretty quickly yeah, arrive, arrive uh, got a, vent, a venture fund. Um, I've talked to some people, uh, you know, venture funding. I've talked to some people who basically they said all you need is enough money to get McLeod, and wow. you're like good to go. <laughs> um, and I think what makes it easy to start a brokerage is that there's no real barriers to entry. Sure. The thing, the, the one thing that is tough is if you have like a brand new authority number. Like you get hung up on a lot. Like yeah, you don't like have if, the uh, if you have an authority number that starts with a yeah. nine. Like <laughs> nobody wants to deal with you. <laughs> yeah, and so you end up having to pay people half up front to move loads and half you know when they bump mm-hmm. the dock on delivery and you know take some risks like that to get your to start building up some business. But other than that, I mean, I've just seen it so many times. Like you know, it's a couple guys, and the next year it's you know fifteen guys, and the sure. next year it's you know forty, <laughs> and it's just like one hundred twenty. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and so. Um, but you know, kudos to them. I, th- I still think, um, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I felt that both uh, Stiefel's argument about C. H. Robinson and also um, the Goldman Sachs' comments about about the three PL were pretty convincing. I mean, mm-hmm. I, they're here. 
They're they're big. They're eight hundred pound gorilla. They're not going anywhere. They're probably better at building technology than any of the the smaller guys. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how they how they ride out this cycle as it matures. Right. Yeah, that's fascinating. All right. Well, I think that does it for this week. Uh, thanks again, Zach, for filling in for Chad. Yeah, this is fun. I like it. <laughs> As always, we go into more detail about each of the topics we've talked about today on our website, FreightWaves.com. We will continue to publish this podcast weekly, so be sure to subscribe to What the Truck on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Also, make sure to leave us a review to let us know what you think of our new podcast. And if you're interested in freight economics and finance, come to our Market Waves Conference at the Gaylord Texan Resort and Convention Center in Grapevine, Texas, this November. Visit marketwaves18.com to learn more about this event. That'll do it for today. Thanks for tuning in, and we will see you next week on What What the the truck. Truck.